0: Well, last Sunday, we, we finished up chapter eight and we looked at Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch and explored uh, uh, some, some categories for evangelism, for sharing our faith with others and how uh, we can go about that in our day being kind of modeling after, after what we see there. And in that, in that sermon, I shared a, a couple of different times that I've been asked in my life, uh, why I'm a Christian. I know I've had lots of non-believing coworkers or friends over the years ask that question of me, and maybe you've had that question asked of you. And I think while that's get, certainly given me the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with those people, um, I think we need to ask a, uh, a an important question about how we would answer that. And we need to figure out how to go about answering the question why are you a Christian? Because I think all of us want to live in such a way, if we're believers at least, we want to live in a way that would indicate that we're Christians and would actually get people to ask us that. Um, but I think for, for most of my life, as I've thought about how to answer that question, it's been, well, I'll share my testimony, I'll share what Jesus has done in my life, and, uh, and that should you know get the ball rolling. And that's definitely not wrong to do that. But I think we also need to recognize that we're living increasingly in a post-Christian society, meaning that Christianity had a, has had a huge impact on our society in the Western world. And we are slowly, uh, maybe not always slowly, moving away from that. Um, Christianity still, will, I think, will always link, have, a, have a lasting impact in the world regardless of where the West goes. But I think that the, the problem with the society we're living in now, as it as it deals with us using our personal testimonies to share the gospel, is that it can be or seem very subjective. Uh, that it can be great for you. You know, this is a my truth, your truth kind of world. And that, that struck me because many years ago when I was uh, in college, um, freshman year maybe, or maybe it was sophomore year, I... I uh, had a good friend from the neighborhood that I grew up in. Uh, we, we were we were close friends through high school. Her and I went off to different colleges, and we got back together on a Christmas break, I think. And I, I had a, this, this feeling, this nagging sense of, I don't think I've ever shared the gospel with her. In all the years that we've been friends, I don't think I've ever taken the chance to talk to her about this. So I felt the need to do that. Uh, and so I invited her to the Chili's restaurant and we, we had a dinner together and I shared my, my testimony with her. She grew up in a, in a nominally Muslim home. She wasn't a believer. Um, she wasn't really practicing as a Muslim either at that time, but she was just kind of living, living life. And her response after I share all this with her is without any sarcasm, without any snarkiness, it was just, wow, that's so great for you. And and that struck me as, okay, maybe this approach isn't the best approach, because it's very easy to share your story, which again, not, it's not wrong to do that, but it's very easy for someone who doesn't want to engage with it to just write that off as good for you, not for me. And so the question is, is, is there a better approach? Is there something else we can do? And certainly, uh, I think there there is. I think that we need to communicate clearly that salvation in Jesus is not about us being smart enough to figure it out. It's not about us working hard enough to earn it. Um, it's, It's not from us at all. But that salvation in Jesus is rooted in the grace of God that comes to us from outside of us. That is a totally different thing. Now you can share your testimony and get there right? But it's a totally different thing than a, well, this works for me, but it might not work for you type of approach. It is, it instead needs to be, even as we may use our own stories to help people see Jesus, we have to get to the point where we go, Jesus gives us grace, and that's the only reason that I'm a Christian today. And if I don't have grace from Jesus, I will die in my sin, and so will you. And that, of course, doesn't you know land as well in our in our uh, tolerant society but it's the truth we need jesus or or we're lost hopelessly and i think what's interesting as we turn to chapter 9 we're going to see the story of the most famous conversion to christianity in the history of the world we're looking at the story of saul of tarsus who meets jesus on the road to damascus he this man later becomes known as the apostle paul he goes on to write 13 of the books of the New Testament. He is transformed uh, from being a, a terrorist against Christianity to being the most significant missionary in its history. And so uh, as we read through Saul's conversion story today, as we see his, his story, we will see things that are in this story that are unique to his experience. Things that we will not see replicated in our lives, Probably. Um, his story was a unique one in so many ways, as is your story and mine, right? We we are all saved by Jesus in unique ways as God works through us. But what Paul's conversion, and I'm just gonna alternate between Saul and Paul, because I can't help it. Okay, so what what he's still he Saul in this story, <clears throat> but um what's what's you what's important for us to see in this is that Saul's conversion to Christianity carries with it uh, common ground, commonality for all of us, things that we can see uh, across the board for everyone who becomes a Christian, even if some of the details of his story are unique to him. Uh, and, And I think here's fundamentally what we have to see. We need to see that Paul's conversion to Christianity and ours demonstrates that God saves sinners by sovereign grace in Jesus. That's the thing, the God, the, that God gives us grace. That's what saves us. That's what saved Paul. That's what saves us. And that's the common thread, even if the details differ in some regards. So I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna ring this bell throughout this sermon that God saves sinners through sovereign grace in Jesus Christ. And so let me define those terms real briefly before we get into this. What do I mean by sovereign in the word in the phrase sovereign grace. <clears throat> well, by sovereign I mean that it, that salvation is through God's purpose that he purposes to save us. He plans it out, he gets us there. He has he has worked in eternity past for each of us. It's purposeful and that it's through God's power to save sinners. That's what sovereign grace means. It means that God is the one doing the work both in planning it, purposing it, and executing the power to save sinners. And then by grace, uh, you may be familiar with this definition, I use it often, is that grace is God's undeserved, unmerited favor or gift uh, through Christ as we trust in him. And so putting those things together, sovereign grace is God's purpose and power to save sinners by giving the favor and blessing that we did not earn or deserve. Through Jesus, so that's my that's my definition. That's what I'm working off of when I say sovereign grace. Throughout this, is that sovereign grace is by God's power for our salvation. And this passage today is a, an amazing one. It's a beautiful one. It's one that you you may be familiar with. Um, it's a famous story for for those who have been in the church a while. But what it shows us is that there are several reasons that we can be confident that God's saving us through sovereign grace because of Paul's story and the things that we see in our own stories. So let's, let's look at these. Um, I want to start just in verse one and two. Here's what it says. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue's at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. The, the first point I want to bring out from this is that salvation is by sovereign grace because sin is a pit too deep for us to escape by ourselves. Sovereign grace must be the cause of our salvation because our sin runs too deep for us to escape it by ourselves. And that's what's being displayed here. This is showing us Saul before Christ reaches his heart. And notice what it says about him. In verse one, it says that he is still breathing threats and murder or I like actually how the NIV translates this, that it says he's breathing murderous threats. And he's still doing that. So still refers to something that we've already seen him doing earlier in the book of Acts, back in chapter eight. Saul is breathing these murderous threats against the disciples of Jesus. And in chapter eight, we were were shown what kind of man Saul was. We are told that he was approving of the murder of Stephen, one of the deacons of the church and the first martyr of the Christian faith after Jesus. And he was there for it. He watched the coats or the cloaks of those who killed Stephen and he was approving of it. And then 8 chapter, uh, chapter 8 verse 3 rather, tells us that Saul was ravaging the church, ravaging the church, And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So in chapter 9, Saul is still doing that. Nothing's changed. But in in 8 verse 3, where it says that he was ravaging the church, I think that's important. We didn't really spend much time on that when we preached through chapter 8, because I I wanted to kind of save it for this. And that word ravaging tells us something. It's, the original meaning of that word is to describe that of a, an animal devouring a body. That's what Saul's hatred for the church and his desire to see it stomped out was like. It was more like an animal than a man. And, and that's, that's telling, right? This is, this is painting a bleak picture of this man, Saul. Saul it kind of reminds me of the, the analogy I thought of is from Star Wars where, um, any Star Wars fans? I don't know. Star Wars, uh, there's a line where Darth Vader is being described as more machine now than man, twisted and evil. And in a sense, although, well, we don't need to get into the Star Wars stuff. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but that idea of being more machine than man, twisted and evil as a descriptor of Vader there, is similar to how Luke in Acts is portraying Saul, that he's more animal than man. He's breathing murderous threats. He's ravaging the church. He's trapped in sinfulness to the point that his humanity is nearly gone. We know that he's a fanatic. He, he talks about this himself in later letters as he writes about himself, Um he he describes himself in a number of ways. In Galatians 1.13, reflecting back on his life before Christ reached him, he wrote, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And then even later in his life, when he wrote 1 Timothy 1.13, he wrote formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, An insolent opponent of Christ and his church. Paul recognized that his sin was so deep, he couldn't rescue himself. The Bible wants us to understand this. This is true for us as well. Now, we may not be murdering other people. We may not be expressing this sin in the same way as the Apostle Paul. We may not be ravaging the church. But, the sin that we have within us is the same, although it manifests differently, right? It's it's still too deep a hole for us to climb out of. And, and I think that Saul is, is the great example of God's grace for us because his sin is so obviously brutal that we are left to ask ourselves the question, how in the world could a man like this be saved? If a, a man who is so... Uh, so intolerant and so hateful and so, so uh, evil as Saul, how in the world would he ever become a Christian? And the answer the Bible gives us is sovereign grace. That it's not in the inherent goodness that saves Saul, in fact, because there is no inherent goodness in Saul, just like there's none in us. But it's great, the grace of God that comes for him as it does for us. So that leads us into the second section here, which is that Jesus extends his sovereign grace by coming towards us. And look at what he does for Saul. Look at verse three through eight. It says, now, as he went on his way, that is Saul, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, 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 So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. So on his way to Damascus, he's in Jerusalem. He gets papers from the high priest giving him permission to arrest those who belong to Jesus. As he's traveling to Damascus, he um, encounters something he didn't expect. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ who came to him and blinded him with a flash of light, knocked him on the ground, humbled him in that regard, blinded him altogether. And and here's the crucial thing. Jesus came to Saul when Saul was nowhere close to coming to him. He was going to Damascus to to persecute Jesus' people, whom Jesus then says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus identifies himself with his people. And and Saul is persecuting Jesus as he's persecuting the people of Jesus. And so Saul is not going to Damascus to go, I want to learn from these Christians and see what this Jesus thing is all about. He's got no inclination whatsoever to come to Christ, so Christ comes to him. John Stott, who is a British pastor, he died back in, I think, 2011, but he was very well known in the 20th century, one of the great preachers of that, of that century. Um, he wrote here about this. I think it's helpful. He said, if we, if we ask what caused Saul's conversion, only one answer is possible. What stands out from the narrative is the sovereign grace of God through Jesus Christ. Saul did not decide for Christ, as we might say, but on the contrary, he was persecuting Christ. It was rather Christ who decided for him and intervened in his life. The evidence for this is indisputable, and I think it is. We've we just read the story. Saul's not going, I want to choose Jesus, Jesus chooses Paul. Interesting. Christ blinds him with a flash of light, knocks him to a ground, audibly speaks to him. And the, uh, these are obviously the aspects of Saul's conversion that are unique to Saul. You probably, when you came to faith in Jesus, did not have a moment like this. I didn't. You probably didn't either. Maybe you did. I mean, it's not outside the realm of possibility for God to do some extraordinary thing in your life. And I don't discount that if he did. But for most of us, we have pretty normal, if we can put in air quotes around that, pretty normal experience of coming to Jesus. Saul's experience was unique in that regard. He's blinded literally for, for days. He, is, he hears the audible voice of Jesus asking him why he's, being, why he's persecuting him. That probably doesn't happen for all of us. And yet, if you think about your own salvation, your own story of how God came to you, you probably do see elements of how God came to you before you came to him. I've always been moved by C.S. Lewis's autobiography called Surprised by Joy. And there, that book is basically his his recollection of how God brought him from a nominal churchgoer as a child um, to an atheist in his teen and young adult years to then a devoted follower of Christ. And he just basically recounts that story. And Lewis explains from his own experience, um, which has always resonated with me and maybe resonates with you, his Damascus Road experience is way less intense than Paul's. But it's, it's nonetheless the work of sovereign grace. Look at how Lewis writes about it. He says that the choice Appeared to be momentous, the choice to trust in Christ he's talking about, but it was also strangely unemotional. I was moved by no desires or fears. In a sense, I was not moved by anything. I chose to open, to unbuckle, and to loosen the reins. He says, I chose, I say I chose, yet it did not really seem possible to do the opposite. You could argue that I was not a free agent, but I'm more inclined to think that this came nearer to being perfectly free than any act I've ever done. I think that's really helpful for somebody like me who's less maybe emotional in responding to things and more, uh, whatever, brainy or something, I don't know. But I just don't feel super deeply as a human being. and, And Lewis obviously describes his conversion in similar language like he just didn't feel like there was this moment now that may not be true for you you may have felt a great weight and a, and a great emotional calling and that's beautiful and right God saves everyone as as uh he must to get us there right and every story is unique in that regard but the point is is that we use this language I chose Jesus and in a sense yeah that's true we do we respond to Jesus and at the same time, we cannot just purely keep it there because if it was only on us and not on the work of God to do, to do for us what we can't do for ourselves, we would never choose him. Christ must act first in your story, in mine, in Paul's, as he did. And I love that. I love how we can see that. And if we think about it, if we reflect back on it, we can probably see those aspects in our own story as well. So, so far in the story here, we've seen the cause of Saul's conversion uh, and his salvation, and it's through the sovereign grace of God through Jesus. But what the rest of the story tells us is, is incredible too. So let's keep going. Look at verse 9, and this is the longest chunk of Scripture, so I'm going to read it all It's going to be, just buckle in, follow along if if that helps you. But 9 through 31, we're going to look at the rest of this passage and then I'll stop and take us through it. It says, and for three days, Saul was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many things about this man, about how how much evil he had done to your saints, And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus, And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, uh, saying, he is the son of God. And all who were with him, uh, all who heard him rather, were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who call upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and for they did not believe he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to him how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Okay, so that was a lot there. But let's, let's think about what all of this is telling us in a nutshell. It's showing us here that salvation is evidence of God's sovereign grace through how we love what we once hated. Paul's life was changed thoroughly through, through, through this complete 180 degree turn from wanting to murder these Christians to then loving them and caring for them. And it's an amazing story, right? And, and I think that this, this passage teaches us three things or shows us three evidences of God's sovereign grace in Saul's life. First, we see that Saul has a new reverence for Christ nine through 12, right? He's fasting and praying for three days. So Saul, as a, as a religious Pharisee, would have undoubtedly uh, fasted and prayed in that, in that stage of his life. But this is a totally different kind of fasting and prayer. This is not a a way to earn some kind of favor from God by doing religious performance, but instead a heartfelt change that reconciles him to God through the cross of Christ that then brings him into God's presence as a son. Saul has a reverence for Christ he never had. He was a murderer against Christ. Now he loves Christ. Secondly, we see that Saul has a new relationship to the church. This is actually told in kind of two separate stories throughout this section, verse 13 through 22 and then 26 through 31. But in both both cases, here's what's happening. Saul is being welcomed into the church through some unsung heroes. Ananias a brother in Christ in Damascus is told by the Lord in a, in a dream to go to Saul, to lay his hands on the, on the man, to restore his sight and to give him the Holy Spirit. And Ananias, uh, as any one of us would, pushes back on this. <laughs> he goes, wait, 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 wait. Lord, do you know who this guy is? Uh, which is a silly thing to ask, but there he is. So, well, I've heard a lot of things about this guy, and, and he's done some pretty evil things. Really, do you want me to go into his house? But he does. He says, Go, do this. And Ananias does. He trusts the Lord. He lays his hand on onto Saul and says, Brother Saul. That's, I think we can gloss over that really quickly. But this is an amazing moment. One commentator refers to Ananias in this story as, uh, as one of the unsung heroes of the faith. He has been brought He is the guy who ushers Saul into the community of faith. He's the one who vouches for Saul in Damascus among the Christians. He brings Saul, he baptizes him, he, he gives him food to eat, he strengthens him. And for many days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And it's because Ananias trusted the Lord, stuck out his neck and said, this this guy is genuinely a Christian now. We need to bring him in. And then you have a little uh, gap here between 23 and 25. But as you look at 26 through 31, you have the same story kind of repeated again. But this time, Saul goes to Jerusalem where the apostles are, and he wants to go and meet with the apostles. And it's like the apostles are going, no. (laughs) They said we're afraid of they were afraid of him. And they did not believe he was a disciple. So of course they didn't, right? Of course, like we can we can look at that and from our human point of view, go, obviously, they aren't going to trust this guy. This, this, this is like crazy. It's like, oh. Oh, does he want to come in and visit with all of us? Like, oh, really? Oh, I wonder why. Um, and so, of course, they're, they're not going there. But then here comes another dude that God uses. Look at this, verse 27. But Barnabas, he's the guy that we met back in chapter, what, at six or seven. Uh, he was one of the guys who gave a bunch of money to the church by selling his land. And that that whole thing kind of blew up with the other Ananias who's not alive anymore. But Barnabas here shows up again, the son of encouragement. He takes Saul and brings him to the apostles and convinces the apostles that this was a legitimate thing. Pretty cool, actually, how God uses these these guys who are just regular people, regular Christians, to bring Paul into the church. And he has this new relationship with the church, but here's the, here's the crucial point I want us to see in that. Only Jesus could have done this. The very people Paul tried to arrest and murder, are now the same people that God is using to welcome him into His body, the church. That's a miracle, as much of a miracle as it was for Saul to be saved to begin with. This is also a miracle of God. And then one more point here is that we see that Saul also has a reversal of status. He goes from being the persecutor of the church to being persecuted for the, for the sake of Christ. On two different occasions, the Jewish leaders in Damascus try to kill him. And that's in verse 23 through 25. He escapes their plot to murder him by the disciples, putting him in a basket and lowering him down from a window in the, in the city wall uh, and Paul later refers back to this as one of his most humiliating moments in his life. In 2 Corinthians, he actually talks about that story and he, how God showed that, proved to him his weakness through that. And, and God used that in his life. But the, the, the disciples in Damascus saved Saul's life. And then again, the Hellenists in Jerusalem are seeking to kill him, but the brothers, when they learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So what, this is what's incredible. is like the, the disciples have welcomed him in, but they're not going, well, if somebody kills Saul, somebody kills Saul. They're actually actively trying to keep the dude alive, which is incredible. Like, because I think most of us would go, well, whatever happens, happens. We'll just let Saul be Saul. And if they kill him, oh, well, too bad. Uh, but they don't, they actively save the man's life. God did this work and, and Paul goes on to be persecuted for the faith as he was once a persecutor. So as we as we see this story, um, we, we need to recognize that salvation is by sovereign grace alone through the work of Christ coming to us. And Saul, uh, Paul, as he becomes Paul later in the story, goes on to spend the rest of his days proclaiming that message. It's in every letter he writes. We could look at all of them, but I, I just want to turn us to um, 1 Timothy chapter 1. I read a portion of this at the beginning of this, um, but if we look at the full section of chapter uh, 1, verse 12 through 17, we will see some beautiful things that we can cling to in our lives as well. Paul writes, I thank him who gave me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord Jesus overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul looks back on his life. This is 1 Timothy was written much later in his life. And he describes himself as the chief or the foremost of sinners. And in many ways, we could agree with that, right? Looking at the story of Saul before he became a Christian. But what Paul points us to is this. That grace is what saved him. It was overflowing grace and mercy that brought Paul to salvation. And his story, he says, was actually meant to show us that if Jesus can save Saul, he can save you. That's his point. I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him. So you and I can look at ourselves and we can go in a couple directions with this. We can go, well, I'm not as bad as Saul, so I must be all right. Or we can go, if Jesus can save Saul, as wretched of a man as he was, he can save me too and I cannot be saved without him. That should be our response, not pride in our our accomplishments or in the fact that we've somehow managed to not be murdering people like Saul did. We shouldn't be puffed up with pride. We should be driven towards humility because the grace of God that saved Saul is the same grace that saves me and you. And we get to celebrate that, and we ought to continue to point our eyes upward, to him as the one who is as the one who is our only saviour, the one who is the only one we can trust in. One more time one more quick place is Ephesians chapter two. I wanna I wanna hit this because this is also written by the Apostle Paul. And he, he explains so beautifully how we how we receive this grace from God. He, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. You and I are recipients of sovereign grace and we should worship Jesus accordingly. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for for what you've done to reconcile us to yourself through your son Jesus. And we pray that you would help us now to respond in, in heart and mind, in soul and body as, as we are overcome by, by the kindness and patience and mercy and grace you've given us in Jesus. Would you help us to respond to you by your spirit that you would lead us and, and call us further up and further in to who you are? Lord, protect us from pride. Protect us from trying to earn or deserve what you freely give and help us to come to you today. In Jesus' name, amen.